Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Leverage Loop podcast. Today's topic is around innovation and how to execute on innovation, both ideating and delivering on really big innovative ideas. Uh, this topic actually came about from an article we published seven or eight weeks ago, where we were talking about how mechanisms are uh, that beat best intentions. And in that article talked about uh, some of my personal experience at Amazon, where uh, pursued and uh, actually uh, acquired a few different companies and also were running at some pretty big over the horizon ideas. And I had referenced in that discussion, somebody who I'd worked with named Andrew Rude, who I felt was unbelievable at this activity. Well, got a lot of great feedback and a lot of interest on the innovation side of that article. And so I figured what better thing to do than have Andrew actually come and talk about it. So I want to welcome Andrew to the Leverage Loop podcast. Andrew, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Bill. Super excited. And, you know, full transparency, I've known Andrew now for seven plus years. We worked together at Amazon for three. And in that time, uh, as I alluded to, we, we actually covered a lot of ground uh, on multiple M&A opportunities, but, but really thinking big uh, about the translation, uh, both machine translation space as well as translation tooling and technology space. And Andrew was doing a bunch of things uh, around AI and ML at this time at Amazon. His most current role, he's doing some over the horizon stuff. I, I honestly don't know even much about it, so I won't speak much to it today, uh, but have a lot of context to Andrew's experience previously. So I'm looking to have, looking forward to having a great discussion. Um, Andrew, if you don't mind, my, my first question is, could you talk a little bit about your background? One of the things you and I really haven't talked about is your earlier parts of your career. And frankly, how do you got to where you were at Amazon we met, but even now where you are today? Um, you've taken a really interesting path. You've, you've done some investment banking type work. You've done some uh, corporate and strategic finance work. You, you've done a bunch of strategic innovation, product leadership, product building work. Uh, have you always been fascinated with technology and has that been in your blood from early on? Or was it something like a superpower that you discovered later in your career? No, it's a great question. And again, thank you for having me. Um, you know, coming out of college, uh, you know, as you said, I went into finance and you know started off in investment banking um, in New York. And actually, the the sector that I was covering at the time was called basic materials. So, uh, you know, steel, iron ore, packaging, chemicals. Those are the types of industries that I started off in. So, you know, pretty much as far away from technology as you can imagine. Um, you know, and then I was uh, doing that for about nine, 10 months. And then I went to a startup investment banking firm um, by a gentleman who left Morgan Stanley. And, um, you know, I think that's really where I understood that there's, you know, a completely different way of doing things that is completely antithetical to like the big corporate way of doing things. Um, and so I did that for about, you know, a year and change. Um, then I went to an investment fund um, that was did a lot of activist investing. And that's really where I learned to see kind of like these quote unquote hidden cycles and being able to bring different perspectives to different parts of the capital structure. Um, that really opened up my mind to um, being able to see opportunities from different angles and really being able to, you know, kind of embrace the unknown. Um, then, you know, you know, I, I was a victim of the, uh, the downturn, financial downturn, uh, was laid off from that investment job. And that uh, was that was that 2008, 2010. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and it ended up being a really you know kind of uh, blessing in disguise 
uh, I, I went back to uh, Morgan Stanley, where I started off my my career out of school, and um, I did equity research. You know, something that's you know, it's it's a, it's a good job, but it's uh, it's one that's not that in, in in my mind is definitely a step back. But um, that's where I really got uh, exposed to technology. You know, I was on the internet team, and we covered different companies, including Amazon. And, uh, you know, I, I was just really, really captivated by all the different things that these technology and internet companies were doing. Um, and obviously, I, 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 I was in research, in my mind, very temporarily. Um, and, you know, in, in equity research, I think sometimes you feel like you're on the sidelines, you know, kind of cheerleading for these companies. And, you know, obviously, I'm the type of person who wants to be in the game. Uh, and so, you know, at the time, there was a gentleman who uh, was in charge of investor relations, built a rapport with him. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another. And I was uh, introduced to, um, you know, some of the folks on the corp, uh, corp dev team, which handles the M&A and investments at Amazon. Um, and I made that transition in 2013. One of the things, you know, that and I'm really curious about is, you know, I always knew you had a really strong finance investment background, really analytical uh, skill set. But the thing that impressed me most about working with you is your ability to see opportunities that aren't obvious, right? Sometimes it's real easy to go pursue when people are talking about, you know, chat GPT right now, right? AI mm -hmm. is the big thing, go pursue AI. Right. You had a you had a knack, and I and I know you probably still have this knack of identifying opportunities that people weren't talking about, or opportunities in technology where you were sort of gluing two or three disparate ideas together and coming up with something really innovative. You know, we we did some work in the voice translation space that honestly wasn't even on my radar until you started talking to me about it and wanting to pursue it. Uh, but that was something that was nobody was talking about really, even at Amazon at that point. Uh, and I just lo I love to know like. You know, if I hear that origin story, if you will, that you you know you shared, it talks a lot about the data side of your sort of skill set. But I'm really curious about that. How do you how do you make those connections? Uh, and is it you know is that approach you take with with innovation? Is it a first principles approach, or is it more of an art science thing? I'd love to hear more about it. Yeah, I mean, I first of all, you know, don't claim to you know have any superpower in that in that arena. But the way I kind of think about identifying opportunities really comes through this framework of intersections. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of things in the world uh, are expressed in terms of like a vector. So like you can think about, you know, typically how does a business operate and you'll, you'll see that, you know, business is always in a pursuit of, you know, wanting to, you know, uh, work backward from customers, uh, identify opportunities to, you know, generate revenue, you know, get their cost structures in line, et cetera. So from a business standpoint, you know, that vector is pretty consistent. Um, then on top of that, let's say that you have, you know, a new technology or a science that's evolving um, and that enables, you know, a way to automate a certain function that, you know, previously was, you know, very hands-on, very human in the loop, very burdensome um, in terms of being able to scale that. So when you have those two vectors on their own trajectories, at some point, there may be an intersection. And once you identify 
you know, different vectors and the intersection points, um, you know, what I've found is there's opportunity there. And so, you know, you alluded to translation uh, and the ability to kind of think, you know, differently about how we um, source data for automating trans translation. And, you know, to me, that was uh, a big opportunity where at the time, you know, there was a lot of, you know, innovation around natural language processing. It allowed us to really see opportunities where you could take training data from, you know, the sources where you could, you know, very easily extract free text speech. Um, and, you know, that's a source of data. Uh, and as long as you have, you know, the corresponding language pair on the other side, you could use that training data to train, um, you know, translation models. And so um, when you identify, you know, an intersection, uh, typically that's where you'll find opportunities. And, you know, you may see that there are more than two uh, vectors that intersect. And, and the more vectors that you have at the intersection point, um, the, the more interesting the opportunity sets are. It can get complex, but um, by and large, that's that's kind of where I look, is you, you kind of follow these different trends. And it may actually be that as you think about, you know, and observe the world, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like picking up pieces to a jigsaw puzzle. And you may have, you know, nine out of the 10 pieces. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, you have a conversation like we're having right now. And, you know, you have this eureka moment where all of a sudden that 10th puzzle piece just kind of forms in and of itself. And, you know, that's that's kind of where you can kind of put everything together um, just through different contexts and, and chatting with different people. And, you know, by and large, that's kind of where I source the ideas that that we work on uh, on the team that I'm on now. Very cool. And one of the things that I'd love to even go deeper on still is, you know, there's this concept, especially in startups of going zero to one, right? Taking an idea and going and finding product market fit with it, finding does the, the idea actually have, does it carry water? Does it, does it make sense? There, there's also, uh, you know, going from one to a hundred. And sometimes that one to a hundred is just as hard, if not harder than the zero to one. And, you know, in some of these ideas you talked about in terms of inter finding the right intersections, right? That gets you zero to one. But I've even seen where, you know, when we're talking about even the, we use a translation example of a new idea for Amazon in terms of voice translation going zero to one and how to accelerate zero to one, but then how to then take that from one plus. And, and I guess two parts. One I'm curious about is the, how do you get the data, right? As you're, you know, even in your role where you were sort of across a lot of different innovation areas at Amazon, you know, some of these things like, like language, uh, voice translation, it wasn't something that was like I said on anyone's radar while the data sets might've been something that you'd heard or talked about, you know, heard talked about. I suspect there's other avenues of, of information that you're using to help start creating these intersection points. Like where do you find information or how do you go about, you know, ingesting information to, to help you have more opportunities for intersection points? And then maybe a second part of that question is, once you've identified an intersection point, how do you then take it from in your, at least in your, maybe in your current world where whatever that is, how do you take it from zero to one, then go from one to a hundred, right? And, and know like, where's the next pivot area or next area of innovation inside of a broader product idea um, that's still in line with the first one. 
yeah i mean that's that's uh that's a pretty big two-part question um the way that i might address that is you know the first part um i think that when you when, when you think about the zero to one innovation it's um that that in, in my mind that's the hardest part uh you know it's rife with ambiguity um i think larger companies such as amazon as one example um struggles with you know ambiguity at scale i think that there are a lot of folks at the company that on an individual basis can handle ambiguity um, and can really distill uh you know kind of a, an opportunity to improve the, you know the customer experience but um you know being able to replicate that across the entire company uh, that's not something i don't think that these larger companies have figured out and so you know to your point you know the the, the team i have now really focuses on leaning into that um that problem set and you know i think you know, you're, you're obviously very familiar with Amazon's leadership principles. Uh, one of those is think big. And I think that over time, I've seen that think big is usually met with a desire to start big. Um, you know, I think, you know, PR FAQs are kind of a very known mechanism for expressing an idea, fleshing it out, and using that as a parlay into a resource ask. Um, a lot of the ideas that are floated by you know, kind of senior leadership at Amazon, and I'm sure other companies, um, you know, there's a big emphasis on, okay, well, will will this move the needle for a company of our size? And the answer to that is, well, I think a lot of executives default to, yeah, it, it certainly could. And therefore, we need to staff it with a very, you know, large team uh, to get going. Because, you know, if, if it's a big opportunity, you you really want to invest behind it, especially you know a company the size of Amazon or some of these other larger tech companies. The reality is though that um, you know innovation is is hard and it's something where you've got to make a lot of very discrete decisions. Um, decision making velocity needs to be high and high quality. Like move fast and move fast with a lot of judgment. That's hard to do when you're kind of making decisions by committee, you know, with a with a large team. Um, so, what we embrace um, on the team that I'm on now is, you know, think big but start small, and that ethos has served us really well. Being able to identify a real, you know, opportunity, and then uh, thinking through, okay, well, how do we get started, and what is sort of that you know, kind of validation that we're seeking. And so the signal that you receive as you're working through, you know, validating an opportunity, that is, you know, that's like the, for us, that's the holy grail, right? That that validation of you've got the right problem, you're on the right track for a solution. Um, when you can move fast and and attain that validation at a relatively low price, meaning you're talking about two to four people's time uh, over the course of call it, you know, six, to 12 months um, you, that enables you as, you know, to double down very quickly and repeatedly. And from there, you can actually um, with a high degree of confidence, grow a team to invest more and more and more into an opportunity. Um, so 
you know, the way I think about this is, you know, there's a validation phase where you kind of prove out the thesis that you're, um, that you've got something that can actually solve a customer problem. And and for, for us, that's the zero to one. And then I think when you think about those one to 100, um, <clears throat> I don't know that our team actually thinks about taking something all the way to a hundred, you know, that's kind of an amorphous idea, but um, the, the, the way that we kind of tackle that next phase is really about what's going to be required uh, in order to actually scale uh, this, the, these, these, this early signal and these findings to a point where we can actually integrate this, um, new opportunity into Amazon and use it to start a new business. So the 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 way that we kind of think about this, you know, very analogous to the times that you and I have been referring to is um, how do we build a startup that would be a good candidate for Amazon to acquire? And that's kind of the bar that we kind of use uh, in terms of, you know, 100, you know, as you referred to is, Hey, this is something that's been evolved and developed to a point where, yeah, you've got technology that you've built that's differentiated. You've got a team that you've hired and put around this idea. And, you know, if we were outside of Amazon, you know, it's very likely that we'd get a call from the corp dev team and they'd be interested in acquiring us and integrating us into an existing business at Amazon. That's really interesting. And, and it actually generated or you know, sparked another question that I have. Um, one of the things I think a lot of companies and I, you know, I feel like Amazon does really well. And I think you and I even did frankly, even better when we were working together, um, is vetting big ideas and running at them. But I think a lot of companies, right. Uh, especially startups, they go from zero to one, maybe go one to 10, right. Where they get product market fit, they find early success. They may get, whether it's fundraising before this last year or just through revenue growth, get a little war chest built up of capital and then want to deploy that capital really fast and, um, you know, do it potentially in a haphazard way and making some bad bets that never have a chance of fully paying off. Um, I'd love to know your approach to this because, you know, you and I actually, one of the, one of the proposals we uh, pers- uh, brought to Amazon senior leadership was a pretty big one. Uh, and it was really focused around how to use humans more intelligently in the translation process, not unlike MTurk, but in a much different way than MTurk operated. And that technology, uh, one of the things we had identified was there were a few potential acquisition targets we wanted to go and, and pursue. And, and so we made a pitch to Amazon senior leadership. And at the time that was, uh, uh, Jeff Wilkie was the CEO of Amazon Consumer. And I think Jeff's exact quote was, wow, this was pretty ballsy, guys, <laughs> which I, I, I took as a compliment that we were really thinking big and not afraid to, to push the envelope. But, you know, and we, we eventually landed on, I think, a smaller target and a smaller risk to take shot that we, we wound up taking. Um, but, you know, you've done a lot of these big proposals, big asks, and, and a lot of them have been really successful at Amazon, right? Uh, when I say successful, not just, hey, the value thesis was basically proven out and we got back to break even, but... 10x return on invested capital with that with that investment or that big bet. How how do you when you're making a pitch like that for a sizable investment? Um, how do you go about how do you go about winning somebody over? I think again, there's going to be CEOs, startup CEOs that listen to this, uh, even CTOs uh, that listen to this, and whether it's 
pitching boards, pitching VC companies, or if you're at a larger corporation, pitching executive leadership on a big idea. How do you go about pitching those really innovative big ideas, especially when you have the signal, you know that this is a winner and you're looking to accelerate through build or buy, um, you know, when potentially leadership may be hesitant to make a really, really big bet or there's uncertainty around it? Yeah, um, I, I would say that when you're trying to make a pitch for <clears throat> thinking big and, and acting big behind it, it, it always helps to be very crisp around um, framing it through both a near-term perspective as well as a long-term perspective. And I think that there's a lot of leaders at different companies that <clears throat> will pursue, for example, an investment or an acquisition because they think that there's going to be an immediate payoff um, because they think that th it's a solution to a very pressing need. Um, taking acquisitions as one example, <clears throat> an entire acquisition process from the start of, hey, you know, we think that there's some really interesting innovation going on outside of our company. And therefore, we want to start looking at who's doing what and trying to get a better understanding of whether or not uh, what's being developed out there, you know, outside the company is is legitimate and could accelerate our roadmap to the point of closing an acquisition and having it integrated. Um, you know, that's an eighteen month process, and so to think that there is a you know a magic wand that you can wave that you know an acquisition will solve a right now need, um, I think is is misguided a bit. <clears throat> So at least Amazon, I can say with confidence, doesn't use acquisitions as a tool to solve right now needs. Um, and so because of that, because of the discipline that, and again, I can only speak for Amazon, um, the discipline that Amazon brings to its acquisition process, um, you, it's kind of a forcing function for business leaders to think more strategically about you know taking these bigger risks and so therefore, um, when you have a strategic opportunity, it's kind of a, 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 a you know a double sided. It's a double sided sword. It's a double edged sword because <clears throat> it may be harder to discreetly outline here's the financial return that you're going to enjoy immediately. Um, and so a lot of the analyses, at least that you kind of used to buttress a case for making a large investment, um, really comes down to how can this be truly game changing? You know, how can this really kind of seed the next, um, you know, another leg of the stool um, strategically for a company such as Amazon? And so um, if you're a CTO or a CEO of a startup and you're kind of thinking about making a big move, uh, making a big investment, um, and let's say that you need to go raise more funding from your, you know, in your investors, the way that I would pitch it um, really comes down to thinking like, how does this, how does this change the, the calculus, long-term calculus to, um, to the company? And uh, I, th I think for that reason, you know, acquisitions are really hard for startups because startups by their very nature are extremely focused and very obsessed, almost monomaniacal about um, solving a a certain problem for a, for a customer um, to say that 
we need to go and make an investment or an acquisition to accelerate that as a startup almost means that, well, hey, this is a big pivot point for us. Um, and so that's why, you know, I typically don't see a lot of startups um, doing acquisitions or making big investments of, of that sort. Now, you can have, you know, kind of, you know, further down the alphabet um, uh, levels of funding, those startups, you know, that are tapping growth capital, they certainly are in a position to, to make acquisitions. So I think that um, companies that are in a position that they they are able to raise growth capital and they have a very clear understanding of what they do and they do it very well, they might find an opportunity to buttress their existing um, set of capabilities by making an investment or an acquisition. And th it, it, it could be highly complementary. And, you know, going back to these intersections that I referred to earlier, you can have a company that's very, fairly well established, identify an intersection where they take their core unique ability and then they find this, you know, highly complementary um, capability that they want to add. And, you know, at that intersection point, all of a sudden they open up a new complete set of opportunities to, to, you know, work on behalf of their customers. Um, and, and so I think that, uh, you know, acquis again, acquisitions and investments are, are more so, um, you know, they should be thought of as a strategic tool to make, you know, big game changing, um, opportunities come to life. Uh, but I think, you know, in terms of smaller companies thinking about that, you know, I, I think that it's, it's, it's probably, you know, kind of an option of last resort. Yeah. You know, I look at the example, like you talked about Amazon and Amazon's been really disciplined about acquisitions. And while not every single acquisition Amazon has made has turned out to be, you know, wildly successful, the majority of them usually always integrate well and wind up being relatively successful. Um, but then you look in the broader market and I don't want to, I'm going to avoid saying many names, uh, but there's a lot of down the alphabet companies that go around acquiring or investing in other companies. Uh, or, I mean, look at AT&T and some of the investments they've made historically that they've just wrote off and spun out or even some of the, you know, the big media conglomerates, like it's almost a joke how much they, they acquire these companies or make these really big bets that they then immediately write off in three or four years. Uh, and I'm just curious, like when, when you approach that, um, you've been even inside of the Amazon uh, ecosystem, uh, you've been super successful about both identifying great opportunities that in working with partners that have been able internally at Amazon deliver on those, whether it's bets or acquisitions, integrate them and deliver on, you know, the upside, the upper end of the success criteria. And I'm just curious, like there's has to be a difference in approach that some of these companies are taking. I think some of it's just un being undisciplined, right? Like, hey, I got money to burn. Let me go throw it at this idea. Or I think you alluded to trying to immediately solve a problem. I'll call that solving yesterday's problem, right? I had a problem yesterday that I'm trying to buy my way out of today uh, or an opportunity I should have been running at a year ago that I'm now going to try to accelerate and go chase. You know, those never usually pan out, but there's a lot of bets people make that aren't that, that still wind up never panning out and want to be just written off. How do you avoid that? And if you're pitching, when you're pitching, how do you make sure that that pitch is landing correct, correctly on whether it's Amazon executive leadership or even outside of Amazon when you've pitched in other settings? How do you make sure that the, the, the case you're making 
is both well thought out, but more importantly, that the right data points are landing too. Um, yeah. So as you referenced, you know, acquisitions are a tool that different companies kind of think about differently. Um, you reference media companies. Media companies are always looking for kind of content or content assets. And so, um, you, you know, if you're a large media conglomerate, I think, you know, the the ability to kind of originate your own content, I mean, they've got teams that do that. Um, and uh, a lot of the big conglomerates do that very successfully. But there's also, uh, as you said, a, a very vibrant community of startups and kind of smaller companies doing very interesting things in terms of creating content, um, whether that, you know, in, in today's terms is, is TikTok, you know, building up a very large user base that is kind of crowdsourcing and, and creating content that is attracting eyeballs and therefore creating, you know, ad revenue opportunities. Um, you know, those types of assets attract larger conglomerates because they, they, they think about diversification of their portfolio of content assets. And, you know, I think it's, it's one of those things where, um, you know, if there's lightning in a bottle somewhere, they're going to be very interested in acquiring it. Um, I think some of the issues they face, though, is that uh, at least in the content space is that, you know, trends change. And so you do see that they they buy what's hot. And, you know, today that may not necessarily be, you know, generating the same traction and level of following, you know, in you know, a couple of years. Um, so I think that it's not necessarily a defect of an acquisition strategy. I think, um, you know, if you have a hot opportunity and you can monetize it, you've got that machine that's built to monetize it. Um, it could be a successful acquisition as they define it. I don't know because I don't work at those companies, but um, I think it's it's harder to to sit back and really kind of look at those and 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 say that 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 their acquisition strategy is necessarily misguided. I think it's just very different. Um, I think that at Amazon and you know some of the other larger tech companies that I know of, you know their acquisition strategy is really around how do we accelerate strategic roadmaps? How do we think about what we're going to need tomorrow and position ourselves as successfully as possible to um, you know put ourselves in this position to succeed today? Um, so a lot of times you're you're finding um, opportunities to make bets that will pay off over over time. Um, one of the things I think is a key success criteria for making those types of investments really comes down to <clears throat> what is your plan of record? What's your roadmap today? And as you think about how that will evolve over time, what are some of the uh, what are some opportunities to kind of uh, buttress that, how to uh, make an investment that you may not necessarily see merging, you know, tomorrow, but if you think a few years ahead, um, that's definitely going to be, you know, a key component to successful customer experiences. And so you can make an acquisition um, with the conviction that's needed to make that type of one-way door decision because you have uh, a vision for where this is going to evolve longer term, like your roadmap. And so when you're in the position 
to be able to make those types of decisions with a longer clock, I think uh, as long as you do your proper diligence, you vet the technology, and more importantly, you're vetting the team that is going to be coming along that will continue to build that technology, um, you're going to be in a, in a great position where um, as you think about the, the risk reward, you know, the, the scales are going to be tipped in your favor for sure. You know, one of the things that, uh, you know, I, I think I'll, I'll slightly disagree with you on is uh, I do think other companies use really, I don't know how, what, what rubric or, or what methodology they use. It's just bad. And I've, I will tell you this, like it's not where we've been talking about acquisitions as sort of a straw man in this specific topic. Um, but I, I've seen the exact same thing happen with just big investments or new investment areas where yeah. not even an acquisition where somebody, you know, I've seen the logic and I won't say names, um, but yeah. firsthand seen, seen the example of, and I, I'll, I'll make it completely off the reservation, but it'll be apples to apples of the, the example will be McDonald's is a billion, hundred billion dollar company or they have tens of billions of dollars a company for sure because they sell hamburgers. Let's go buy or let's go make our own Burger King and turn Burger King into McDonald's or let's go build our own McDonald's because they can make you know billions of dollars selling hamburgers. We could make billions of dollars selling hamburgers with no rationale or, or no thought put into well, how did McDonald's get to where they are today? What type of market penetration and loyalty do they already have? Why do you think anyone else could create a burger chain, you know, that's going to replicate yeah. that? Uh, and why do you think like doing it on a shoestring is going to magically turn into something? Like I've seen, I've seen that exact argument made in a different context uh, than yeah. burgers, but to use making an investment that was doomed from the start and then proved to be doomed from the start when a year later it was scrapped completely and abandoned. Um, and, and that's the type of thing that I, I you know, when I think about what you, the things you've done, even Amazon, again, in a different framework, and I'd say a much more, a much more sensible and one that's set up well for success, you've been able to still overachieve in that framework. And one of the things that it's really, I think, interesting to me is like the approach you've taken is asking yourself what I've seen firsthand is asking about the consumer and like, will this benefit the consumer and how so, but then asking like, what are the multiple ways this is potentially going to win? And so, like, I know at least the, the the most the last case you and I worked on together, where uh, it was a smaller acquisition, a, a great little core team. Uh, they had built a, a really interesting uh, app. That 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 whole thesis, though, it had three or four ways of winning, and yeah. we just happened to hit on all of them and, and over overachieved. But like, part of that discipline was not just like the big idea, but it was the big idea coupled to like how to deliver in reality. And, and I, I don't know, maybe you haven't even thought about it, but like, I'm curious, like, do you have your own approach to that to really make sure that when you're, you know, not everything is going to pan out, you're going to take risks and some of them are going to fail, but, but the, the bets you are proposing to make, like framing them in such a way that it's, Hey, look, like ultimately this could fail, but here's why we think this is the, the, the asymmetric upside is there or the risk reward is there to make this bet. Yeah, I, I think that, okay, so first of all, you are correct. I think that there are many companies out there with very defunct acquisition strategies. They use that to plug holes. Um, and, and as I said before, you know, acquisitions are hard. And, you know, that it, at, at the very least, I think it's about an 18-month process. And so if you're trying to solve a problem that needs resolution on a timeline that's shorter than 18 months, 
you're really upping the risk in a very asymmetric way by pursuing an acquisition um, to solve a problem. Um, so as you said, if you're trying to solve yesterday's problem with an acquisition, I think you will probably find more often than not that the acquisition is just not going to really pan out because there's a lot that goes into you know, bringing in uh, a completely different company, different technology, uh, you know, a team that has its own culture and, you know, kind of integrating that into the existing business, um, regardless of the size of the company, that, you know, it's a high risk bet. And I think that it's acquisitions are hard. I mean, the is that a lot of acquisitions fail. So you're absolutely right in that sense. Um, I think that, you know, as, as you look at how do you make good strategic decisions uh, by kind of tipping the scales in your favor? Again, you're right. You know, let's find opportunities that are longer duration, meaning we have more time for it to pan out because we're trying to solve tomorrow's problem, not yesterday's. Um, and that you set it up for success by identifying multiple um, ways for it to add value, you know, to the existing franchise. And that I think is, if you can do the work and you can find a way to identify different streams of value, um, you know, that really tips the scales in your favor. And I think there, there's not really in my mind, a playbook that I can say, Hey, here's the checklist that you need to abide by when you're trying to evaluate these opportunities. Um, I think it's it, partly it's opportunistic, you know, the, the opportunity that you referenced, the latest one that you and I had worked on, um, you know, as you may recall, that was completely uh, serendipitous. Um, there was, a, you know, there was a firm that was shopping, you know, the asset and um, it seemed like there were multiple tie-ins with um, your existing roadmap at the time. Uh, and that enabled us to be able to develop the core thesis. So what's the biggest reason why we want to swing the bat at this opportunity? <clears throat> and then as we did a little bit more digging, you know, as you recall, we, we identified other ways that this asset could potentially provide value to different parts of Amazon. And I think that's really where you can develop these secondary use cases that can really, you know, provide a lot more justification for, you know, taking on uh, something as risky as acquiring a company. Uh, and I think you and I were very fortunate that as we, um, you know, went through the entire process again, you know, it was, it was a longer process. You know, this wasn't something that we got done in a few months. Um, the, the thesis played out. Like we, we proved that out together through hard work and, you know, creating the right relationships with different parts of the organization that were able to, um, you know, make great use of the, of the, um, the, the data that we were able to, you know, extract um, with this asset that we acquired. So um, I think that, you know, finding multiple value streams is always something that is, is, is great. I think, you know, at times it can be harder for certain companies because they're maybe not as diversified as an Amazon or you know, some of the larger technology companies. But um, regardless, I think that even if you're uh, in kind of a, you know, very singularly focused um, company, you know, you, it, it's really easy to find different ways of, you know, 
extracting value out of something, um, whether that be a build decision or a buy decision. Um, and I think that, um, for example, you know, thinking through, um, you know, as again, a business is there to make money. Um, so how does this investment or this acquisition, how is it going to make money? I think in this day and age, the next question is, you know, what sort of data can I extract from this, from this investment or this acquisition, um, whether it be, you know, building or buying, um, you know, and, and, and data, data is everything right now. Right. So, um, you know, that's, that's an easy low hanging fruit opportunity is, you know, if, if you're going to build something or you're going to buy something and there is this, you know, kind of ongoing perpetual stream of data that's produced, um, you know, that's an easy opportunity to capitalize on. So there's, I think, you know, now more than ever, uh, it's, it's easier, in fact, to be able to identify and, and harvest, you know, more, more fruit out of investments that you make. Yeah. And when you say data, I, I'm going to assume, and I just want to clarify for any listeners here that the, the data you're referencing isn't just the, I think when people hear data and harvesting data, they think of the worst use case, which is taking data, pulling it, you know, personal data out and then selling it to a broker or a third party. Wow. It's also taking signal from, you know, potential product or a, a new, a new offering and use that signal even internally to either to speak to new customer bases, to be able to target new product opportunities, et cetera. Um, so that data is well beyond just the sort of the, the, the bad, use, I want to consider the bad use case of data of mining data for, you know, that the consumer isn't aware of for nefarious purposes. Oh, absolutely. Sorry. You know, um, being, being, sitting at Amazon, being very cu customer obsessed, I would, I don't even think about use cases of, of using data and nefarious purposes. To your point, you know, what I was saying is, you know, being able to harvest data that informs other decisions that you're going to make as an organization to build better customer experiences internally, a hundred percent. Yeah. And I think a lot of people miss that. Like, and I, I obviously knew what you meant, um, but a lot of, a lot of companies, startups uh, and even bigger companies miss that opportunity of, Hey, this data isn't just going to help us uh, get more data on a consumer that we can go parcel off to subsidiaries and or go sell to third parties. It's really about learning about the consumer and learning about the market and identifying new opportunities in the market that you can then go build or innovate uh, on behalf of consumers uh, in. Uh, one of the things you mentioned too that I, I want to just go back on is I, I think I, the word that comes to my mind is discipline, right? Having discipline up front, thinking about whether it's build or buy, uh, for a big, a big bet or a big opportunity, what, what is, what am I, how am I going to quickly learn and know if I'm on the right track or not, if I'm building, if I'm, if I'm going to try to acquire something, cause I'm beyond the learning stage, how do I multiple value streams? How do I make sure like what happens if my, my core thesis isn't right? Is there still a way to make this successful or to gain, to, to gather or glean success from this so that the, the investment isn't all for naught? Um, but then discipline on the backside, like, uh, a different example that we, you and I worked on together was the first acquisition that that I was a part of. Um, uh, it was a you know a, a machine translation startup that uh, was uh, uh, local to Pittsburgh, and uh, part of that that thesis was around what the, what tech what skills they could bring into the company, the existing technology they could bring to the company, et cetera. Um, but we had discipline in the execution of, in that case, again, an acquisition 
of when things didn't go well, right? We discovered some stuff after that, that we acquired them and had integrated them that we had to quickly pivot on certain licenses we had to adjust to, or certain technology that we weren't really comfortable using uh, and pivoting out of those without losing focus on the core thesis and what we were doing. I think super important. Like if I, if I contrast that to an I I've never been a part of AT&T, but I'm going to use them as an example. Uh, you know, they acquired DirecTV, I uh, got five, six, seven years ago now. Uh, they acquired DirecTV, they screwed with the brand, they tried to build a streaming platform, they screwed with that brand. No, no discipline in the approach from outside perspective of the consumer, and I was a consumer of both of the satellite product and of the streaming product. They then do that for a while. They spin the thing out and, and basically divest themselves of it uh, and have to rebrand it as its own entity again. Meanwhile, the streaming product never made any sense. The, uh, I don't even know what, I think it's still called, I think it's DirecTV Stream now. I, I don't even know for sure. The, 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 the satellite product, DirecTV, right? Like there was no discipline from the, from the consumer perspective, no discipline on what the approach they took, how they took it, what they did, what they, what they were doing with it, why they acquired it in the first place. Yeah, and I, I've seen that play out on smaller scales than even some of the startups that I've been a part of. And I think that discipline is super important because ultimately, right, again, if it's a build or buy decision, I've seen this equally on build where people aren't disciplined up front, justifying the rationale, really pressure testing uh, the assumptions and trying not to get sort of sucked into either shiny objects or convincing themselves of, you know, grandeur use cases. But then on the execution being disciplined on, when you're trying to prove a, a concept being not, you know, identifying when's the kill moment, when's the point to walk away. And then also identifying, Hey, where are the other pivot areas I'm going to go learn and explore on and make sure I stick to those and execute and understanding what are the, when, when issues, you know, situations or unexpected things pop up, how do I make sure that, you know, if they're not part of the core thesis that solve them, resolve them without getting distracted from the core thesis and vice versa, when they are, how do you know when it's time to cut bait versus it's a, it's something that just needs to be adjusted to. Yeah, that's, there's a lot there. Um, I think when you're building, you, you know, you, you got to find a problem that's worth solving. And uh, that's, that's really where a lot of, initiatives fail from the get-go is you're you're solving the wrong problem or you're building a solution in search of a problem to solve uh, i think that's one thing that amazon has done very well is you know working backward from a customer problem that's very clearly articulated and you know building a solution that you know meets and exceeds expectations to uh to solving that problem so from an organic build perspective i think that's the single biggest pitfall that uh, a lot of startups and internal teams of larger companies um, sort of, you know, tie their sneakers together and then start trying to run a marathon is that they, um, they, they are doomed from the, from the starting line because they are not solving the right problem. They're not uh, working backward from what a customer is actually telling them. Um, and in the case of, you know, trying to solve an unidentified need because sometimes customers don't know that they need something uh you know it you know starting starting with too large of a scope um so you know you've heard of scope creep uh you know but you can start off with having scope that's too broad and because you're trying to solve too much from the get-go it dooms you uh and you know that lack of focus actually 
um, comes back to to really bite you. Um, I think that you know you alluded to you know other companies and you know they they kind of make these very large bets that don't pan out. Um, again, I've I'm not I don't have visibility into the strategic rationale of those companies and why they did what they did. But I think, you know, as you can look at the symptoms of, you know, what what did they end up doing, um, you know, post-investment. And my guess is that they probably did something very similar where um, they say, hey, you know, we are a large diversified media company. Um, and again, you know, we want to acquire you know, an, an asset that has unique and differentiated content or maybe a distribution channel or maybe, you know, these customers are highly complementary to the ones that we have already. But, um, you know, you've, you've got you've to always ask the question, you know, what's in it for my customer? Like, why is a customer going to be super delighted by the fact that I am acquiring another business? So those existing customers of the acquired business, why are they going to be jumping up and down at the prospect of me acquiring them? Um, meaning the 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 business and the customers they have. If you don't have a great answer as to what's in it for those customers, then you probably have, you know, potentially misguided acquisition rationale. Uh, because, you know, those customers need to it needs to be very obvious why this is going to be accretive to their experience, why it's going to be valuable to them. Uh, if you don't have that answer, then all you're doing is you're introducing a whole lot of risk. Again, we talked about how risky acquisitions are. Um, and the the folks that actually end up paying the price for kind of cavalier decision-making around that type of risk are the customers. And so that's why I think in the, case you cited, you know, there was a decision, well, gosh, we should probably unwind this and try to return this asset to its previous state as closely as possible and call it a day because there was certainly franchise value in the asset they acquired and they ended up doing more harm than good, um, which destroyed value. And therefore, you know, it's, it's not surprising to see that they kind of reverse course and tried to kind of put things back the way they were. So if you don't have a great thesis on how you're going to improve the customer experience, then you probably don't have much business making a big bet like that in the first place. But that's just me assessing this from, from the outside. One of the things you said was actually gonna be my last question. And I'm just, I wanna circle back to it just to make sure we put a, we put a bow on it. Um, you know, I think one of the things you and I, we share a bunch of things in common. We both love building both technology, but more importantly, outside technology, both in carpentry, yeah. woodworking. Uh, we've also both made small angel investments in companies and uh, had played in that space as well. Uh, and you had talked about, uh, my question was going to be around like, hey, what do you see when you're working with you know young startup leaders or even in the startup space? Like, what do you see? as the most common mistakes they make. And I think you alluded to some of that already directly. We talked about some of it about, you know, tying shoes together and trying to run the marathon uh, and not really having a crisp thesis to start with and that dooming everything else to come subsequent. Is that, is that the one you see the, the most when you're looking at it from the outside? Um, yeah, well, I think, you know, it, the startups, 
like if you're going to be making an investment in a startup, you know, it really comes down to um, people first and foremost. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, there, there are certainly, uh, there's a rare breed of, of person out there who is very, again, use the term monomaniacal about a, a customer problem that they want to solve. And when you, I, when you meet those types of people, uh, that is really kind of the, the ace in the hole. Um, because those are the folks who are going to be making the hard decisions, the two-way door decisions, and more importantly, the one-way door decisions. Uh, and so I think it really comes down to the the people that are working at a, a given startup. And so for me, it's really about, um, you know, assessing the quality of the leadership team um, and, you know, what it is that they want to build, why they want to build it. Uh, that's most important when you think about, you know, making an investment, you know, whether it be an acquisition or if you're going to make a direct investment, um, it really comes down to the the, the people. Um, and, you know, that may sound cliche, but, you know, you wouldn't believe how many times investors get super obsessed about what it is that is being built as opposed to who it is that's building it. And, um, you know, I, I will always go back to who it is that's building the cool stuff as opposed to how cool the stuff is in and of itself. Because, um, you know, when things are going right, uh, it's really easy. Like, you know, you, you we've seen cycles where uh, you can't throw money at opportunities fast enough um, and, and, and it's high fives all around. When things go bad or when... Uh, you 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 have leadership teams at startups facing adversity. That's when you really see um, who makes the cut, and so you want to make sure that your bets are placed behind folks who have that ability to exercise consistently great judgment, and who are not afraid to adapt, not afraid to pivot, not afraid to figure out and hustle their way out of precarious situations. Um, so in, in my mind, it really comes down to who's the founder and do they have what it takes to be able to lead through different types of problems that they're going to inevitably face um, as they develop and build the company. So would, would it be fair to say that it's really two who's and, and uh, a who, who, the, who the founder is, the discipline they bring to the problem space they're, they're running at, and then who the customer is and the discipline being brought to identifying and serving that customer? Yeah, I think you could certainly say it's two who's. Um, I, I would say that like who the customer is, um, it, it's, I, I would say it's more of like, what is the problem that that customer has that is worth solving? And in how does your solution actually address that problem? And is that solution something that's scalable? Is that something that is, is a durable idea? Or is it something that's going to constantly need to be monitored and, um, you know, you're going to need to make constant pivots and adjustments to uh, the solution? It's fine to have, you know, a solution to a customer problem that constantly needs monitoring and um, improvement. That, that doesn't mean it's a bad uh, idea or a bad pursuit. If it's solving a customer problem, it's, you know, there's a big opportunity to make 
make money and to um, you know have that be a, an extremely durable idea. But it's just different. So I would say that um, you know it's I I I don't necessarily think that it's necessarily who the customer is. Um, I think it's really a matter of like who that that entrepreneur is who can that entrepreneur attract to to work at that company and and to um, continue developing that that customer solution that's most important but i mean it's just my two cents yeah i, I was i was referring more to knowing who their customer is meaning not, oh yes not like not like the person of the customer but like it, what, what problem am i solving and who am i solving it for like got it yeah yeah Oh yeah. Voice of customer is extremely important. Knowing who your customer is, being able to walk a mile in their shoes, that's extremely important. So I, I, in in that sense, I totally agree. Like you've got to know who your customer is and you've got to be that type of leader who's going to, you know, single-handedly obsess about solving that problem day in, day out. Um, There are, there are multiple examples of uh, startups that, you know, compete with large technology companies um, with, you know, obviously orders of magnitude, different resources and personnel, and they're able to outmaneuver and, um, you know, kind of defend their turf, so to speak. And the reason why is because they're singularly obsessed about solving the problem. They care a lot about, uh, you know, the decisions they make that impact that experience for the customer. And so in many ways they beat these larger technology companies at their own game uh, because of this singular focus. And I think that, um, you know, that's, that's part of the reason why, you know, the team I have exists is because, you know, larger technology companies do great things, but at the same time, I think scaling the ability to make, you know, small targeted investments that are singularly focused on customer needs uh, becomes a little bit harder because there's this fallacy that you need to invest a lot behind a fresh new idea for it to have the potential to really move the needle because you're so big. Awesome. Well, Andrew, this is, I think we've had a great conversation. We've covered a lot of ground. Uh, one of my traditions, and when I do these podcasts, I always like to ask if you have any questions you'd like to ask me, do you have anything you want to cover today? Yeah. You know, I think that it's really interesting, you know, your journey. So, you know, you've, you've obviously worked at a larger technology company. You've, you know, had multiple roles, you know, in leadership at startups and um, you know, for, for my own, uh, benefit. I'd love to understand um, as you as as you kind of are in a position where you're needing to to build and build fast. Um, how do you think about the trade off between you know building to get the signal to validate a thesis versus building for scale? Can you do both of those at the same time? Or do you really have to be discreet about, hey, here's an opportunity. We don't know yet whether or not it's going to pan out. Therefore, we don't want to build for scale because that requires a whole different mindset and um, level of resourcing. But if it pans out and we're right, we obviously are going to want to build it the right way so that it can scale and be durable. So how... How do you think about that trade-off and 
And how do you how do you resource opportunities like that appropriately? It's a great question. When I uh, when I think about on both on a product and an engineering perspective, when I'm looking at uh, new opportunities and trying to to find we'll call it product market fit with those opportunities, or at least find signal from them, um, I take sort of my, my, let me take a step back. My my general sort of tenets, and I've I've talked about this in a previous article, are uh, in order. Keep it simple, stupid. You aren't going to need it, so don't don't build don't build unnecessarily, and also try not. Lastly, don't repeat yourself. Um, and so we keep we keep it simple, stupid, and the you know you ain't going to need it, don't build it. It I think it really speaks to intentionality, right? When I'm when I'm pursuing a new idea, part of both the product side and the engineering side, especially when I'm leading both, is you're not going to do anything to the exclusion of scale. Right? I'm not going to build to the exclusion of building something rigid or building it so it's not extensible or whatever. But you need to be intentional about when the cost of building something to scale or building something to be extensible is, uh, is materially more costly than getting the signal, making a very de- de- intentional decision on that. And I will bias toward the signal. Um, now, when, when the cost is negligible, bias toward building the right, building it right the first time. And so part of that though, is being intentional about the approach you're taking to building, even when you're trying to find proof of life or find product market fit, uh, knowing what, what decisions you're making and target, like a great, a great example of this would be building, you know, in, in the insurance space, there's lots of lines of insurance, both commercial insurance and uh, consumer insurance, um, whether it's on the consumer side, auto life, uh, renters, homeowners, you know, on and on, you know, pets insurance. The on the the business side, you have uh, uh, workers' compensation, you have general liability, you have uh, different professional liability, you have commercial auto, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Usually, if you're starting somewhere, you're going to start with a line. And while you could build an insurance company and a, and a technology platform to complement it that would support all lines and support all ways of billing the consumer and support uh, different billing cycles and et cetera. If you don't even know you're gonna have success or have market fit with the first line, you're focused on building the first line. Now, as you're building that though, you don't potentially don't build to the exclusion of adding more lines or adding new billing methods or et cetera, but you don't go out of your way, in my opinion, to go build those at first until you have the signal. And I think Amazon does this really well. Like, you know, you never build to the exclusion of uh, building for success, meaning, okay, if this is successful, how do I make sure that it'll scale appropriately? But I'm not going to go build for n number of variants and n number of cases to start if I don't know even if the idea is successful. Let me go quickly iterate. Let me go quickly experiment. Let me go get the signal. Once I start getting the signal, then because I was intentional upfront about what I was building and why I was building it, I should also know where is the first areas I'm going to have to invest if I am super successful, I want to expand one of the line. If I'm going to have to expand to other marketplaces, if dot, 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 dot. Uh, and so again, to me, it's intentionality to make sure that when you are making those bets, you're not doing anything in, in, uh, unintelligently to the exclusion of something else. By the same token, you're being very intentional if the, the investment to, to make it scalable is material to, or material incremental, making sure you're not walking through too many one-way doors before you get proof of life. That did, makes I, sense. did I Did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. Um, and another question I have is, you know, if if 
if I'm sitting here and I'm trying to assess or, you know, really understand, uh, you know, the CEO and the mindset of a startup CEO, um, whether, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking to join that CEO's team, whether I'm trying to do diligence to acquire that company, um, you know, or, or maybe I'm, I'm just looking to, you know, figure out whether or not I can really count on the CEO's leadership before I enter into a commercial agreement, regardless of the case. Um, what are, in your mind, what are kind of the key tells of a CEO who has, you know, really sound judgment and is capable of, you know, you know, high velocity decision making, meaning how, what are your, what are your criteria for identifying leaders who, um, are ones that you can count on and that you, you know, you're making a really good kind of long-term decision. Um, in su supporting, whether that be joining their company, acquiring their company, or, you know, really uh, signing up to a big deal with that company? Oh, that's a great question. Um, and and I'll, let me let me think through this a second, because it's I have strong opinions on it. Some of those strong opinions are informed by, we'll say, personal experience that may not want to go fully in detail on. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, you can keep it positive. Keep it positive. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll say this. I'll say this. Um, I think I, I think a key tell is ultimately what separates, in my opinion, a a either mission driven CEO or even a a, a success driven CEO that is successful and that is the make the right bet whether it's a bet from an outside perspective or even from you know is that a place I'd want to go hitch my you know hitch my wagon to and go go work at is it is the it is the vision clear is the vision concise is the vision focused um, that's that's the first like and I've when I've seen that be true I, I think the companies that I've both seen from afar and have worked at, are wildly successful. I would say the second component is not just that; um, it's also the 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 realism and the pragmatism that leader brings to a conversation, right? Like, while optimism is important, right? And I, I never worked at Apple; I never met Steve Jobs, right? But from afar, right, he was at times. You know, he, even people talked about the the with the distortion field around him in terms of. You know, so maybe the optimism of being able to deliver on ideas. I think even in, even in that even in with those type of leaders that are maybe optimistic about where they're going or the new ground they're going to cut, there's still a there's still a healthy pragmatism or realism or even I don't want to say paranoia, but uh, you know a, an obsession, if you will, around not just is everything going to work as it, you know, what could be the success criteria, but how am I going to avoid failure and the pr being pragmatic about that? Um, you know, and I, I, again, I never was in a meeting with Jeff Bezos. I crossed paths with him one time in my seven years at Amazon, uh, but even other leaders at Amazon that I know came from that same sort of school of thought that I had plenty of meetings with um, there, there was a healthy, uh, optimism about what we were going to do, how we were going to do it, why I was going to change the world and be successful with a lot of pragmatism on how do you know you're actually making progress? How do you know, right? 
oh, this isn't working. Let's talk about how we're going to fix it. And, and I think to me, the, 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 the CEOs, both startup and bigger company and executive leaders will say that have that, that are successful and that even when they hit adversity, they have that gene, right? The ones that are just like wild eye optimists that, that, that can't be focused, that sort of skip around everywhere and ultimately aren't, aren't pragmatic about like, what are you going to do when things aren't well? Tell me it's, 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 it's a visionary leadership that while maybe occasionally successful, I've never personally experienced to be successful. And I say successful, meaning long-term successful. Uh, so to me, like those are the two key things I look for that sort of that crisp vision, be able to clearly articulate it in a way that is inspiring in a way that makes sense, but then a pragmatism to go along with it of what are going to be the challenges? How are you going to overcome? Even if they're overall optimistic about we are going to overcome it, here's how we're going to do it. Right. Understanding that it ain't going to be, you know, it ain't going to be a clear shot to the goal line. I'm going to have to break some tackles along the way, maybe being confident I'll break the tackles, but understanding the tacklers are coming and how you're going to break them. Those are to me are the leaders that I think are the ones that will ultimately be super successful and have been historically. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Um, if I may, the the last question that I have for you is, you know, really around given your experience at Amazon, experiences at Amazon, uh, given your experiences working at startups, you know, kind of high velocity companies that are that are moving very quickly. Uh, would you, would you ever be in a position to come back to a larger technology company if you had the opportunity to truly be in, in, you know, kind of air quote this, an entrepreneur, you know, an entrepreneur who has the flexibility and degrees of freedom and the autonomy to make good, sound, long-term, uh, product decisions on behalf of customers, uh, but within a, a larger organization. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I'm still approached uh, about opportunities. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm obviously I own Leverage Loop, and that's my sort of my entrepreneurial you know pursuit right mm -hmm. now. Um, but I, you know, not only would I try to potentially do my own product idea if I had one that was really interesting, if I had an opportunity to go work for a company big or small. Um, that, that I felt like I could make an impact at and I, that uh, uh, allowed that level of freedom. You know, honestly, in some respects, a bigger company may, if you had that sort of that perfect criteria, like I love my time at Amazon for that exact reason. If you have that, that, that perfect criteria where you have a, a large enterprise with the stability of a large enterprise and maybe with the resource of a large enterprise, even if that enterprise is making a pivot and they're making a pivot in a direction, but they're committed to that direction and they really want to go in that direction, I'll join a legacy company that that is truly committed. That the, the, the real sort of secret, you know, the, the magic there is: are they really committed to that pivot, uh, or is the bigger company that's able to make that innovation bet? Are they really are they really committed to the entrepreneurial mindset? Um, if I find one, though, absolutely, I would do it in a heartbeat because I, I, I again, I think in some ways it's no different than you know, Amazon was. I think we ever people say, and I even said it when I worked there, of like a, you know tens of thousands of startups, thousands of startups under one roof, um, because of the way they operated. Now I can't. I've been gone now what four years almost. Can't say it's still that way, um, but at least when I was there, you know, when we worked together, it very much was like that, and you know that allowed a lot of entrepreneurial creativity. Not perfect entrepreneurial creativity, mind you, but a a lot of uh, autonomy, a lot of 
uh, ownership, a lot of the ability to go and drive and own that I am interested in. And I think it's important that most, I think, really strong technologists, product leaders, innovators want to do something similar. Um, but for me personally, that guy would have no objection to going to a bigger company either if they had all those things. Yeah, right. Totally, totally. Yeah. I hear you. Well, All Andrew, right. I just want to thank you for taking the time to do this today. Um, and for those out there, uh, we'll be doing more discussions uh, over the next probably month or so. I think the next couple of topics will be around product and engineering. So stay tuned and look for those. Thanks so much. Thank you.